Hi, it's Katerina. On today's show, we begin with a story from the Philippines on the island of Luzon, not far from where my family's from. And one afternoon in June of 1991, when residents say the air in the small village of Lourdes started to vibrate. A volcano dormant for 600 years erupted in multiple explosions that sent up huge clouds of ash visible 60 miles away in Manila. Mount Pinatuba blew her top with ash spewing straight up 20 miles into the atmosphere and then opening like an umbrella into a dark cloud that stretched as far as Vietnam and Cambodia. And within minutes, falling ash turned day into night. It was the second largest eruption of the 20th century, and it went on for nine hours. People in surrounding villages ran for their lives. 800 people died, and 100,000 were left homeless. Tonight, the volcano continues to spew out tons of molten rock. But the reverberations didn't end for the climate. Something major shifted in the stratosphere, and gas from that ash plume scrambled weather patterns and produced a cooling of the entire planet by almost one degree Celsius for almost two years. Now some climate researchers are asking, can we replicate that? Mount Pinatubo's eruption was almost a natural climate experiment in keeping the planet cool. We have a rising fever that's approaching an emergency level where things start to break down. Kelly Wansar is an activist focused on climate innovation. She calls these approaches emergency medicine for Earth's climate fever stabilize the patient kind of medicine so you can have the patient in a place where you can treat the underlying condition. It's emergency medicine because it's directly messing with basic ecological systems, the clouds, the Earth's atmosphere. Planetary-scale projects like this are sometimes called geoengineering. Ages ago, they sounded more like science fiction than science. But now carbon emissions are soaring. No one wants to use this technology. It's drastic. It's not even a plan B. It's more like a plan D. Just like with medicine, like you want to do as little as possible for as short a time as possible, that the more you do, the riskier it is. You'll meet Kelly Wanser and researchers working on an intervention called marine cloud brightening. How would it work and how soon? How would countries control it? Can we deploy this technology in time to save the planet? And if we do, what repercussions might it have? I'm Katerina Fake. How is technology impacting our humanity? It's the question of our times. I made a discovery that was literally unimagined by any human being. There's a sort of a creepiness where somebody is really mistaking the tech for being real. Trust me, that stuff is going on. Penetrating the consciousness in the technology space and the public. This is a show where we take a single technology and ask what's its greatest potential. I mean, really exciting things. Enormously complex. And what could possibly go wrong? We're just looking at each other thinking, oh my God. The future is in our hands. I'm honestly sort of on the fence. Our boldest new technologies can help us flourish as human beings. Now it's accelerating. Absolutely. Or destroy the very thing that makes us human. I I don't have any doubt. We have to become more informed. Because what I like to say is any technology in human history is neutral. It's how we decide to use it. Failure is not an option. It is not an option. This is Should This Exist? Hey 
Hey, it's Katerina, and today my producer Amy and I are in Palo Alto, California. We're here to meet Kelly Wanser from Silver Lining, which is an NGO, which does geoengineering, although she prefers not to call it that. It's a good day to talk about clouds. It is overcast. And then there's this somewhat anonymous-looking building where I'm very familiar with Park. Park is the Palo Alto Research Center. It's been around since 1970, and it was originally a subsidiary of Xerox with all kinds of groundbreaking innovations developed here. Laser printing, Ethernet, the modern personal computer. Very Silicon Valley style, kind of low to the ground. Invisible or something, or trying to be. Yeah, if you were trying to be not the ostentatious Bond villain, but you were trying to be the subtle, inconspicuous Bond villain, this is how you would design your buildings. Aha, I see Kelly inside. Did you just arrive? Well, this morning. Kelly Wanser is executive director of Silver Lining and works in partnership with Park. She spends a lot of time here when she's not in New York or Boston or Seattle or Washington, D.C., just, you know, working the, working the process. <laughs> Advising and advocating for innovation and research that would act quickly on the climate system, like within a few decades or less. Wow, it feels so labby. There's, it, there's like so much lab stuff. It's like gear, 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 gear. Rooms with machines buzzing and beeping and flashing. Diagrams. Kelly's leading us through the labyrinthine halls at Park, and we pass a small windowless lab room where a group of white-haired men, dubbed the Old Salts, are conferring in a circle. Well, we're just—we're actually just popping our heads in. We'll come back later for real. Kelly's coworker promises we'll come back here because what might look like your granddad's ham radio club is actually on the cutting edge of fast-acting climate intervention. We're concerned about rapid climate change, near-term climate change. And the fact that the portfolio of options that we have today, reducing emissions, growing trees, those operate over many decades. May not be fast enough. Kelly's not your typical climate activist. She worked as an entrepreneur in technology for 20 years, which sets her apart from most. She's much quicker to advance radical ideas like geoengineering. But you don't like that term. Well, I think the the National Academy of Sciences calls it solar climate intervention. And geoengineering was a term that I think was coined by, you know, a couple of young scientists in the 60s or 70s. This is more like medicine than engineering. In a minute, we'll look at how Silver Lining plans to execute this solar climate intervention. But the why is pretty clear. Advocating for climate innovation was a passion for Kelly for a dozen years as a tech entrepreneur. But about four years ago, once the urgency became clear, it was hard for her to work on anything else. And I I did a talk that was called Emergency Medicine for a Climate Fever. And I do think in terms of how we think about what's happening to the Earth system, we have a rising fever that's approaching an emergency level where things start to break down. And our job right now is to understand whether we have emergency medicine and how to think about it. Kelly studied economics and philosophy in college. Among many influences in her work in climate intervention, she says she was particularly inspired by a French chemist who became a Buddhist monk, Mathieu Ricard. He has a quote that I can't remember the exact nature of, but it has to do with, you know, that life's meaning really is is about reducing suffering. Mm -hmm. And so for, for me in the climate situation, that's the sort of what we say in tech, high-order bit, 
You know, that's the sort of guiding principle. Which prompted me to probe even further about her earliest ambitions. What Um, did you want to be when you grew up? When I was really little, my mom told me I wanted to be Pope. Pope? <laughs> yeah. And apparently I was pretty upset when, when she told me that wasn't an that option. <laughs> I don't know what answer I was expecting, but it certainly wasn't Pope. And so much of what we're doing and so much of what we're talking about is called playing God by a lot of people. Some call geoengineering playing God with the planet. Skeptics say we'd have to be truly desperate to even consider this on such a global scale. But other experts believe we've reached that point. Our position today is that we don't know enough about these options to know whether there's something we really want to take seriously as climate responses or there's something that that we need to preclude. But we think that our current level of understanding of them is, um, is not sufficient. In exploring the options out there, Kelly refers to a recent report from the National Academy of Sciences on the most promising areas to reduce or arrest warming quickly. In the category of fast-acting cooling, the fastest way to, to reduce warming on the planet is to push sunlight away from the planet. And they looked at all the possible ways of doing that, from mirrors in space to ping pong balls on the ocean, plastic sheets on the Arctic, painting roofs white. It went by pretty quickly, but you did hear that right. Back in the 60s, scientists floated the idea of trillions of ping-pong balls that could reflect the sun's rays back from the ocean. They looked at how invasive they were, how risky they were, and they recommended as the most promising approaches the ways that are based on one of the ways that nature keeps the planet cool, which is the reflection of sunlight from particles and clouds in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And what... Their hypothesis was that if you were to slightly increase the reflection of sunlight and particles from the atmosphere by 1% or 2%, that you might offset a doubling of CO2, and that could be 3 degrees or more of warming. And And this happens naturally in the case of massive fires, of which we've seen a lot recently. That's right. Volcanoes, other natural events. That's right. Volcanoes and wildfires do help cool the planet, but pose their own grave threat to human life. So here at Park and the University of Washington and Harvard, they've started looking into whether there's a less destructive way to increase the reflective capacity of clouds by making them brighter. It's a project that could have immediate and wide-ranging impact, so perhaps it's not surprising that a team of engineers has come out of retirement to work on it. The old salts these retired engineers to work on this technology for the sake of their grandchildren. Those guys that, that we saw down the hall. Just, Honestly, it was like the room of the elders. Uh-huh. It really yes. was. Like you kind of looked in there and I felt very much as if suddenly we had walked into a secret cabal yeah. of, um, you know, the enlightened. That sounds like hyperbole, but if anything, it's an understatement. Gary Cooper, Jack Foster, Suds Jane. The old salts are a half a dozen physicists and engineers and computer scientists who've now spent 12 years as volunteers thinking about ways of seeding the clouds with sea salt and other materials. Doing this increases the clouds' reflective properties. Clouds, as you know, are little aerosol of tiny water droplets, really small water droplets. The smaller they are, the whiter the cloud is. Rain clouds are dark because the droplets have gotten big and they don't scatter light anymore. I did not know that. 
See, it all makes sense. So let's go over that one more time. Clouds made with small water droplets are brighter than clouds with big droplets. Brighter clouds reflect more sunlight away from the Earth, which slows global warming. So how does spraying salt into the clouds help? So the idea is, we did not come up with this idea. They're building off the work done by John Latham at the National Center for Atmospheric Research and Stephen Salter at the University of Edinburgh. We're just the plumbers. This is a natural, well, it's a version of a natural process. The ocean, every time a, a wave breaks on the ocean, there are bubbles. Every time a bubble pops, a little tiny bit of salt gets put into the air. That tiny salt particle becomes a nucleus around which the condensation forms. And that's the natural way of doing it. We're trying to augment that. By spraying the clouds with an ultra-fine salt mist from ships, it would add condensation nuclei to the atmosphere, increasing cloud reflectivity over the ocean. You can hear the spray coming out of the nozzle. The old salts are testing that in a small-scale system in Park's lab. And so we have this plume of uh, particles that are emitted. It's like going to the seashore. That's yeah, what it is. Yeah, yeah. It's salt spray. Mm-hmm. They're hoping in the near term to take this from a single nozzle to a much larger system outside of this lab to study how those particles get released into the atmosphere. So you would need hundreds of these nozzles that you're just seeing one of. And as they work with more and more nozzles, they'll need bigger and bigger spaces to work with. So this room is probably about, what, 200 square feet? So your next space will be how big and then how big and then how big. You need to bring it out to the ocean, presumably. But it's taken us 12 years to get where we are, and we don't have something that we can actually deploy yet. So we need to do the research. We need there to be more funding for the research. And, uh, you know, we just keep working on it because we're trying to save our grandkids. We've also contended that when we have patents, we'll make the patents freely available for people doing climate mitigation work. But as passionate as they are about their work, the old salts hope their technology is never used. It's more of an insurance policy, a fallback if things get really bad. None of us is in favor of deployment. All we're advocating, and that you can advocate for, is that you do the research on this. We would be thrilled if it wasn't needed. Yeah, we would be delighted if you say, oh, we don't need this, it's fine. Nothing is going, we don't need it. It's rare to hear any group of researchers, much less volunteers who've dedicated over a decade of their lives to a project, say they hope their work isn't needed, but they're motivated by something deeper. Before we left them, one of the old salts wanted to talk about the inspiration for their 12 years of volunteer research. I just got a, a little one that's four months old. You want to see it? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm telling you, having grandchildren now, it's not an undiluted pleasure because you worry about the future. Not an undiluted pleasure for this grandfather, for fear of what the future may bring. Coming up, potential traps and possibilities of seeding the clouds for sunlight reflection on Should This Exist? Hi, it's Katerina asking, should this exist? With Kelly Wanser of Silver Lining. We've been learning about Silver Lining's experiments with marine salt spray to increase the reflectiveness of clouds. 
The hope is that this will slow or even stop the steady march of global warming. But humans deliberately interfering with the climate isn't an easy sell, especially to some veterans of the environmental movement. So my experience in talking with Al Gore about this topic very briefly on two different occasions, a a decade apart, I'll, I'll tell you the stories. As a young activist, she got a big, big dose of the negativity she'd be up against from an icon of the battle against climate change. I was at the Democratic convention when Obama was nominated, and I happened to have a floor pass, which allowed me access to like the elevators up and down the stadium. And I got in the wrong elevator, and I ended up getting off behind the stage. And um, coming off the stage was Al Gore with his um, staffer. I said, you know, I honored to meet you, and I, I was curious what you think about geoengineering, which I was calling it at the time. And he was uh, really unhappy to be asked about it and had a pretty strong reaction. She said, geoengineering, it's a terrible idea. It's like methadone. We should never do that. And It's interesting that he compared it to methadone. I find it interesting because methadone is kind of a treatment, but it was pretty clear that this was a sensitive kind of off-limits area. And I saw him a, a decade later um, at the TED conference, and I was reintroduced, and I wasn't going to bring it up. And this person said, you know, this is Kelly Wanzer. She works on geoengineering. What do you think? And he's like, well, you know I'm opposed to that. But he was much more relaxed about it. And so I, so I took that as a sign of progress. But this is still something that... It's not easy for, I think, particularly for people who've been working on climate change for a long time. If we were cloud brightening, would that just be a quick fix? Would it weaken the international resolve to reduce carbon emissions or global reliance on fossil fuels? And there may be other pitfalls. In the hands of the wrong person, is this this dangerous? The first thing I'll say is, um, unlike some things, it's not an easy technology for one person to sort of go and do, it's very visible. It's, you know, that from the calculations we've done in Silver Lining, it's tens of billions of dollars a year. It's not cheap and easy to do. It's not something you can do in secret. It's something that takes a lot of research, a lot of cooperation to find out answers to the questions that you want, like satellites and aerial studies and all kinds of things. So no rogue actors. It's a lot less likely than you think. I asked the same question of Dr. Stephen Hamburg, the chief scientist of the Environmental Defense Fund. Um, sure. Some kind of super villain, who, you know, like you know, like a Bond villain who kind of came and um, you know deployed some radical method of changing the atmosphere, for example. There has been some movies along those lines, but I, there I'm have less, been movies <laughs> along those lines. I, I'm less worried. I'm, I mean, I think the really challenge we face, so obviously. People doing nefarious things is always a concern, but like any system, and this is the most complex we've got, right? The biosphere, the whole earth. When you start tweaking, you have unintended consequences. We have to remember that geoengineering is not solving climate change. It's about masking some of the impacts. This is only at its best and if it works out well and doesn't have a lot of side effects, an opportunity in a climate crisis to buy some time relative to the worst possible effects of climate change. 
Kelly Wanser from Silver Lining, um, she likens it to a medical intervention. You know, this is this this is this would not be maintenance. <laughs> this would be emergency medicine. Right. Though metaphors are dangerous things, we're talking about all of humanity being impacted by any such intervention or at least large regions. And so we really have to think about it as how would how do you get a global consensus for doing anything? Dr. Hamburg has been working on questions of governance for solar radiation management, holding meetings on every continent except Antarctica to find out what people are thinking. What are the impacts and potential risks? You know, the scale of the decision is just unprecedented. And so the challenge is that there's such a relatively small group of people who even know much about this topic, uh, thinking about the implications, the moral hazard that potentially comes along with deploying uh, these kinds of technologies. So we're involved in just trying to, how do you do the governance of the research? That's the sort of first baby steps. So far, I've heard several warnings of caution, but no definitive supervillain scenario for cloud brightening. So we went looking for a perspective rooted as much in history as science. I'm just working on a paper where I'm talking about unreasonable approaches and, re and slightly more reasonable approaches, and then things that we could really do now to help um, with our climate pickle. We're in a pickle. Yeah, and I, I list the- I love, your, I love your turns of phrase. <laughs> we are. <laughs> We're in a pickle, yes. Jim Fleming, a historian of science at Colby College, says if we're facing unprecedented challenges, it's good to take a look at the precedents. I love this approach of taking history and mythology and fiction, um, referencing Walt Disney, Mark Twain, <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut, right? I mean, you actually say, you say, um, you know, in fiction writing, there's a moral core that's missing from the speculations of scientists and engineers. In his book, Fixing the Sky, he says this history is, quote, a tragic comedy of overreaching, hubris, and self-delusion. But he says speculating about climate engineering has a long history. One of his favorite stories is of the first national meteorologist, James Espy, in the 1840s. The Storm King. Storm King Espy, yes. And, um, <laughs> and why and do they call him the Storm King? Well, he, he had a very strong reputation uh, as being the, the actual person who identified uh, convection, the up, upward rising currents that cool and precipitate. And he, he never did this, but he proposed that we light giant fires up and down the Appalachian Mountains to every Sunday afternoon. <laughs> so after, after church, he would go out and have a gigantic bonfire up and down the, the Appalachians from Maine to Georgia. And then that would cause it to rain overnight, and it would be nice and uh, and fresh, and uh, and the rivers would be full by Monday morning for commerce. And um, I, kn I know there's a, there's a link here between climate engineering and uh, the eruption of Mount Pinatuba in 1991. I've actually visited the town next to Pinatubo. Is it still there? Or the What's amazing about it is that the level of the lava and the volcanic detritus has basically buried the town. So mostly mm. when you walk down the main street, you see the roofs. You're at roof level. Oh, my goodness. And the only one that building that is actually above ground is the cathedral. And you can walk right under the roof <laughs> of the cathedral. That should be a required field trip. If you're trying to make a volcano and you're not nature or you're not a deity, 
Uh, this is what might go wrong, too. I mean, on the cover of the book, I put the technocrat with one giant lever to symbolize that no one person, one nation, one project should have ultimate control or, or claim that they have ultimate control. But I, I, my, my version of positive engineering is like cleaner cars and quieter cities and fuel switching and, and engineering interventions or ideas that make important differences but not, not tipping the earth with a gigantic lever. Professor Fleming isn't a Luddite. He clearly advocates for small-scale technological innovation. But in his opinion, geoengineering projects shouldn't leave the lab. Climate engineering research should be done between adults, between consenting adults, in private. <laughs> that, that is, in, on, on computers. <laughs> on computers, but not in the sky. And now from a historian to a futurist. Oliver Morton is a longtime editor at The Economist and author of Planet Remade, How Geoengineering Could Change the World. What would you say, you know, regarding geoengineering is your greatest worry as it relates to future generations and what they might say about what we've done now in the 21st century, in the early days of the 21st century? The greatest worry is that we talk enough about geoengineering for people to think it's a real possibility and thus that if things get really bad, it could be called upon as a form of action. And yet we don't actually do the work that allows people to know how to call upon it as a form of action. Mm. So effectively, that's to screw the next generation or the generation after that doubly in that we allow the idea of geoengineering to reduce the urgency we feel about reducing fossil fuel emissions, but we don't do anything to make geoengineering easier for them. Right. And so that's why a lot of people want to see geoengineering as an absolutely last gasp, you know, in case of global emergency, smash glass and pull lever sort of a thing. And I just think that sounds like a remarkably bad way to treat the world. So preparation and forethought and, you know, deliberate action and process. Yes. And at the moment, the fact that we're having this sort of like shadow discussion where the idea of geoengineering is out there, but very little research is being done. There's very little really informed discussion. That just leads to sort of like bad ideas about geoengineering, ill-informed ideas about geoengineering. There's some good reasons for thinking geoengineering is bad, but I want that debate to happen in a clearer, better way. Something Oliver Morton said resonated with me as a sort of common theme, both among those who believe geoengineering is the future and those who preach extreme caution. The biggest danger may be thinking we have time. Coming up on Should This Exist, we're back with Kelly Wanser of Silver Lining on one of her frequent trips to Washington, D.C. during the Earth's warmest January on record. Hi, Katerina. I'm saying hello to you here at the end of my work week in Washington, D.C., uh, outside the Capitol. I'm back with Kelly Wanser of Silver Lining, who sent me this audio postcard from the grounds of the Capitol building. 
It was less than a year ago, but it feels like a time capsule now. It is January, uh, and this is not a typical day in D.C. for January. And it is a very beautiful, sunny, 70-degree day. So this is the kind of weather that concerns us. In the pre-pandemic world, Kelly spent about a third of her time in D.C. Then as now, it was a complicated time under the Trump administration to be advancing any big American initiatives about climate change. Just the same, which we'll hear from Kelly is a pretty optimistic view of legislators' receptiveness to environmental interventions. It's a byproduct of their witnessing devastating climate events at home, a silver lining, as it were. The conversation about climate change has changed radically in the past year or so. Most legislators, both Democrats and Republicans, when you talk to them now, their staff will start telling me about things that are happening in their district or in their state. So um, the administration is different because they've, they've taken really, uh, uh, oftentimes taken positions that are counter to what these national and international reports are saying, or even what some of the U.S. science agencies are saying, and they're even counter to what we're seeing in the natural system. And now that we're grappling with a global pandemic, there seems to be less interest in environmental oversight than ever. But I think there's reason for people to be hopeful because lots of legislators in D.C. care about climate change across the spectrum. So that's going to be important in the next administration. But it is human nature. We run ourselves right up to the edge of the cliff and then sometimes off the cliff like we did in the financial crisis. And then we have to we have to figure out what to do. It's just that in this case, um, there is a cliff you go off of that you can't recover from. And now we have to say, okay, we're gonna need a combination of maybe some riskier things some new technologies, but failure is not an option. It is not an option. So, so we have to figure it out and we have to be you know, quick and systematic in how we do it. Kelly Wanser of Silver Lining. There may not be much consensus yet around geoengineering, but there's plenty of consensus that whatever we do to fight climate change, we need to do it together, and we need to do it fast. The concern about cloud brightening and other solar climate interventions is that it's like playing God. But haven't humans been doing that already? We've caused huge shifts in the planet's makeup, driven thousands of species to extinction. If anything, we're like a god that sits on its hands while civilizations burn. Cloud brightening may turn out to be impractical or too expensive. It might in fact be like methadone, keeping us functioning, but not the same as getting clean. But methadone is designed to work best with other therapies. Maybe if geoengineering can be developed as part of a comprehensive strategy, it can help cure our energy addiction in time. Look, I don't get to decide should this exist, and neither does this show. Our goal is to inspire you to ask that question and the intriguing questions that grow from it. 
Cloud brightening is good, but it can't just be a license for us to keep doing what we're doing. Something needs to fundamentally change. Nature is wild, y'all. You can't control the atmosphere. And I think to think that you can is maybe misplaced energy. You know, maybe the Earth will spit more volcanoes and she'll do it herself. We don't need to do it. Stop messing with her. We can't agree on anything internationally. How do we come to consensus on something as massive as this? Let's just stop breaking it, then we won't have to fix it. Much of the technology that we have with us right now feels like science fiction. And in 200 years' time, we may just need this. I think that geoengineering is incredibly dangerous. However, we must weigh that danger against doing nothing. Doing nothing is also incredibly dangerous. Agree? Disagree? You might have perspectives that are completely different from what we've shared so far. We want to hear them. To tell us the questions you're asking, go to shouldthisexist.com, where you can record a message for us. And join the Should This Exist newsletter at shouldthisexist.com. I'm Katerina Fake. Should This Exist is a Wait What original. The series is produced with generous support of Omijar Network, a social change venture working to ensure technology is safe, fair, and compassionate, and a world in which individuals have the social, economic, and democratic power to thrive. The series is produced by Mary Beth Kirshner. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Robin Wise is our technical director. Ben Hicks is recording engineer for Disher Sound. Danielle Roth is our assistant producer. Catherine Winter, consulting editor. And Alex Berg, our scriptwriter. Our field producer was Amy Standen. Music and sound design by Mark Phillips. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Our executive producer is June Cohen. Special thanks to Darren Triff, Sarah Sandman, Emily McManus, Anna Pizzino, Christina Gonzalez, Katie Clark Gray, and Adam Heiner. Visit shouldthisexist.com to find the transcript for this episode. And don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps other people find the show. 